Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Introvert Theater Podcast. Uh, today I'll be talking about 1987's Masters of the Universe, directed by Gary Goddard and starring Franklin Jella as Skeletor, Dolph Lundgren as He-Man, Meg Foster as Evil Lynn, and a young Courtney Cox as Julie. So, probably the coolest thing about this movie is the first few minutes, because it, um, it takes place on Planet Eternia right off the bat, and we get a glimpse of, uh, Castle Grayskull, with the sorcerer staring out of the, um, one of the giant eye sockets. Now, it's a matte painting, but it's beautifully painted, and it looks familiar enough to the animated counterpart that there's a certain satisfaction that I get from that part even today. There's, um, within those first few minutes, we're, we're actually introduced to Skeletor, uh, Evil Lynn, and we learn that they've finally seized control of Castle Grayskull, and that his plan is to defeat He-Man and gain the power of the universe. This was actually a main plot point in the animated show, but the bumbling Skeletor and his goons never, by any stretch, um, actually won and took control. Now, we find that uh, that Man-in-Arms and Tila have been captured by Skeletor's, Skeletor's centurions, uh, only to be saved within moments by He-Man. They have a chance meeting with a little creature named Gwildor, who in this movie uh, takes the place of Orko for some reason, and is an inventor and a locksmith. He's created a um, cosmic key that conveniently conveniently uh, opens up portals anywhere by the use of um, specific tones that have to be entered like a, like a keyboard or a synthesizer. So in short, in trying to retake the castle, He-Man and his crew narrowly escape defeat by having Gwildor use his, his uh, prototype cosmic key to whisk them away to Earth in the 80s. They befriend two teens, Kevin and Julie, and Detective Lubick, played by James Tolkien, who you'll instantly recognize as Strickland of the Back to the Future movies. They end up helping one another um, when Skeletor and his forces eventually invade Earth. And of course, naturally, He-Man and his fellow Eternians defeat Skeletor on Eternia in Castle Grayskull, save the sorceress, and then send Julian Kevin back home safely. So, why this movie? Why take the time to talk about such a commercial film that's generally, you know, panned across the board and essentially is a product of a toy line that was developed in 1981? Well, I happen to enjoy it, that's why. <laughs> the, the cartoon itself... It started its run when I was maybe eight months old. So my appreciation for it and the toys didn't come until um, it ran in syndication as reruns from about 1985 to 1990. I remember having some of the original uh, Mattel action figures in a book that came with a cassette with actual recorded voices to go along with the story. I feel like the the franchise and maybe that toy line took the back seat, of course, when the Ninja Turtles came along, and it hasn't really recovered since, I don't think. But with that, there's seemingly always um, been some sort of Motu, that's short for Master of the Universe, uh, resurgence every few years from animated shows 
to even new toy lines. I think the 87 movie can only be appreciated by those who have um, helped Elegus elevate it to its cult status and that still have a soft spot for the franchise. I love that it's a product of its time by having Julie's boyfriend be a musician who is able to get everyone back to Eternia by simulating the key tones of the cosmic key using his using his synthesizer, thus opening a portal and allowing them to retake Grayskull. But mostly I love the dated special effects and costumes. There's a, a certain quality to 80s effects and makeup effects that you don't see much of these days. Skeletor especially looks fantastic. He's in some ways kind of a far cry from his animated counterpart, but trust me, that's okay. He only resembles him in that he's a skeleton wearing a um, hooded cloak and has his and still has his Havoc staff at his side, which looks really cool. Um, Frank Langella could have easily phoned in his performance, but he's just so good and he chews, he chews up whatever scene he's in. I think, <clears throat> I think the discussion that could be had when talking about this film's is it or talking about this film rather is its intentions. It could be said that it was only meant to generate interest in a show that, by that point, had essentially been off the you know off the air for a few years, or to move toys or whatever argument anyone wants to bring to the table, but. I'll always regard it as harmless fun. I mean, let's face it, nostalgia sells. And if that isn't apparent by today's film standards, I, I don't know what else to tell you. I would argue that my generation, in fact, is the most exploitable today. I think anyone in or around my age has been catered to and spoiled, really, over the last couple of years. From the Marvel Cinematic Universe to the DCEU... Uh, Matrix sequels, etc. The list is endless, really, and can you blame movie studios? I think people should be more open-minded when it comes to film, though. And here's why, and slightly off-topic. I watched Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza a few days ago, despite um, people's reactions and rumblings about a joke or a few jokes, actually, about a white man's interchangeable Asian wives. Now, given the context of that film, it's very apparent that the joke is about the audacity of the white Japanese restaurant owner and how he, quote-unquote, translates the English language to them. So, why bring this up? Well, I enjoyed that movie. And I know the difference between context of a film and the occurrences within that film versus uh, taking things too seriously and dismissing an entire film out of a sense of misplaced anger. Really, it, what it comes down to is sometimes shitty people do shitty things in film because they're a reflection of how people treat one another today. I wouldn't be able to appreciate a film like um, Scorsese's Taxi Driver if I didn't allow myself to look at film through... Um, if I didn't allow myself to look at 
that particular film through the eyes of Travis Bickle, right? That said, sometimes an attitude like that doesn't allow for the enjoyment of a commercial toy-driven flick like Motu. Don't get me wrong, there are some films that are absolute garbage, but there's nothing wrong with allowing oneself to enjoy the simple pleasures in life, like watching a half-naked Eternian run around Earth in his underwear fighting some colorful creatures. When I look at Motu in any incarnation, I appreciate not only the colorful characters, but the combined efforts of storyboard artists, uh, writers, the actors involved. No matter how much nostalgia plays a part in my continued enjoyment of the franchise, I can at least admit to the campiness and budget constraints of the filmation cartoon, but I can do so with a smile and through a non-pretentious lens. Remember, this is a podcast about the appreciation and celebration of films that I enjoy. I never said they'd be an examination of John Cassavetes' classics. That said, I think this is a good place as any to stop. Um, thanks for tuning in. The next episode, I'm going to talk about a film called Cloud Atlas, um, because it's a film I haven't seen in a while and that I've been wanting to watch over the last couple of days now. Uh, now I think I'm going to take some flu meds and hopefully pass out for a few hours. Maybe get in, get in an hour or two of video games if I'm lucky. It's that time of the season. Uh, until next time, take care. Please stay healthy and drink your water.